out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you to the very end of time. But, as you know, we do love our indie pop on the show. Always playing the finest, as I often say. And we do love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of 23 Skidoo. Because I caught up and spoke with Alex Turnbull to find out more about life, love, poetry, percussion, the rhythm, the drum, and much, much more. This is the interview and this is the first bit where I was asking Alex about the film he made, Beyond Time, a documentary about his artistic father, William Turnbull. And this was his answer. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Alex, it's over to you. Yeah, I mean, I guess it it, it was. And, you know, I guess, you know, being, you know, half Chinese and half Scottish growing up at that time, because there were no other kind of I mean, there were kind of mixed kind of biracial black kids, but there were no a mixed Asian kids at that time. So and and actually I had we Johnny and I both had Chinese names, which which might be okay now, but wasn't very it wasn't okay then. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> it was quite, you know, there was a lot of shit and eventually we just took, you know, about about nine or ten, we just said, look, can we just have our English names? Because it was uh it was not a good time to be called Chuan, let's just say, in, you know, in, in, and, um, but, you know, I guess retrospectively, it seems, you know, very like, wow, yeah, you had parents that were artists, but it was just very normal. And at that time, art wasn't cool. Well, art wasn't a thing except the amongst the couple of hundred people that were interested in art. So, you know, it wasn't like it was, um, you know, how it might seem now because art's changed but we were just you know johnny and i were discouraged from doing art because our parents were like you'll never be able to make money you know doing this because they both suffered you know and struggled well not suffered but struggled you know to do to pursue their craft and i think that had a big impact on on me and johnny just growing up around that you know we got into skating which was our first thing so i'm speaking for me and johnny because yes. that's my brother, and actually he was in the band before me. Originally the band started out, um, it, it, uh, it's kind of like a school band, and it was Matthew Maxwell, Fretz, Johnny, and a guy called, and later on a guy called Patrick Griffiths and Sam, a guy called Sam Mills. And um, that sort of, that was the first incarnation, and there was a single, um, Ethics, Another Baby's Face, which was produced and paid for by Mark Bedford from Madness, who was the bass player from Madness, who yeah. was our school band before they were called Madness. They were called the North London Invaders, and we used to go and see them every every week. So that was, you know, that that was, and then eventually Tom Heslop, who was the singer, and, and I joined, and that was kind of when, you know, Skidoo started. Yes, which was quite interesting because I'll, I'll go back slightly. Because I sort of, yeah, I was born in the mid-60s, so kind of it was the early 70s that I started to get more aware of sort of, I suppose, the usual cliche of Top of the Pops. And before that, probably hearing my mum playing Radio 2 
um, in the kitchen as she was kind of fighting the twin, what's it, twin tub uh, washing machine that used to sort of be quite a performance washing in those, you know, those 60s periods for sort of the housewife. It was kind of a very cliche, but listening to Radio 2 and things like Jimmy Young in the afternoon with, you know, what's the recipe today? So I had sort of that kind of sound, I suppose, of Burt Backrack and Soft Pot before hearing people like the, the Sweet and stuff like that. But as you, it was interesting what you were saying about artists, because there was, you know, it was much more of a sort of working class background with a couple of slightly um, arty children at school whose parents I suppose were artists but they were slightly different than everybody else I remember them well because because he was uh, the father was called Ron Fuller who was a toy maker and there was a few potters who tried to make a career and they did you know the the, um, Robin Welsh who recently died so there was a there was a couple of kids so were you those were you and Johnny those children at school who were a little bit quirky um, I don't know. I mean, I guess being I guess being half Chinese probably set you apart anyway. I don't know about being quirky. I guess you spend most of your childhood wanting to try and fit in, really, which was quite hard then because we were quite different, and especially when you had like a you know a Chinese name or something. But I think skateboarding was the thing that we both came to first that when we were about 14 or 15 and we discovered that and you know eventually became like two of the main sort of skaters on the kind of british scene in that period in the 70s which was become kind of like the dogtown kind of period but we, that was probably the first bit of sort of counterculture yes really evolved you know i think before we'd had my dad had like revolver and satanic majesty's request and sort of you know, Royal Scots Dragoon Guard. So we, and, you know, he listened to jazz, um, you know, kind of Indian, you know, music, ethnological music, uh, you know, like opera and classical music. So we kind of had a very varied sort of thing going on in the house. But I guess as soon as we were interested, yeah, we were interested in Top of the Pops. And then, you know, once it got past that, I think what is interesting is that period when, Skidoo started. I mean, our first single, did the, the, well, I'm saying the first single, the first 12-inch single that we made on Fetish, um, The Gospel Comes to New Guinea and Last Words, which is kind of the beginning of 23 Skidoo really properly. You know, that was recorded with Cabaret Voltaire at the Western Works. I mean, yeah, over two and a half days, we went up there. We drove up there with all the gear in a van and, um, you know, slept on the floor. Yes. But... Well, you know, they were like, oh, you know, the people that we were listening to at the time, you know, and then like, you know, that was an amazing experience. Um, and, you know, we actually Last Words was the track that we had sort of planned to do. And the gospel was something that was kind of an experiment that uh, we'd made the backing track for it with all the sort of sound effects and the noises and the chanting and loops and stuff. It was like an ambient backing track. And oh, we went out for an Indian meal and we came back, smoked joint, and just went in and just Fritz and Johnny and me, um, uh, we, we just sort of freestyled that track. And it, that's why it kind of lasts sort of for 10 minutes. And I remember walking back into the control room and Mal was uh, from Cabaret Hotel was just like, wow, what was that? Because they were, I think they were used to working with drum machines and stuff. And I think that the thing that differentiated Skidoo then was we were very percussive. Yes, absolutely. Even, even the way we sort of, and I think we reacted against that later on. Probably when I look with hindsight back on it now, I mean, I was discussing it with a friend and saying that, you know, I might have done it differently now and not done the culling is coming 
you know, right at the period when we could have become like a really successful band. But I guess that was part of our our art and you know we we did you know we did have a sort of strange period where we um you know asked our our asked you know sam and tom to leave and we went off on a really very experimental tangent you know that didn't evolve that much traditional mute you know instrumentation yes you know and then sort of came back to it but by the time we sort of because really the coming is coming the a side was a one-off live gig that we did the first WOMAD and it was the first gig that we'd done after Sam and and, and Tom had, had left the band and we did it and we knew everyone was kind of expecting kind of a funky kind of percussive band um which is kind of what we are actually but we didn't want to do that then and so we just created a a, a ritual that was like a banishing ritual um, you know, using gas canisters and, you know, metal sheeting and tape loops. And I think after that point, after that record, we pretty much estranged the music industry. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, that was that came out on Rough Trade. Then, you know, we did those records like Coup, which have pretty much become, you know, kind of cult classic. Coup's kind of, you know, the Chemical Brothers totally, you know, definitely you know, nick that for block rocking beats, you know, and I know that now because a good friend of mine who was at their club in Manchester, because there was a bit of supposition, is like, oh, is it, isn't it? And he said, no, that was the last track. Who was the last track they played every week? So, you know, they're definitely aware of the track when they made that, when they made that record. But, um, you know, it was, it was a difficult time for us. Illuminated had no money, you know, and, you know, but I think those three records, coup, um, language and urban gambling in the album you know it was a it was a very sparse time i mean i think people forget that now sometimes how sparse that like when i grew up in the 60s and 70s it was really fucking sparse yes you know, we were lived up in a big old cold house uh, but it was like it you know it was it, there wasn't much so we had one pair of shoes and it was sort of like that was the it was that post-war sort of mentality i think that that people grew up and even you know into the early eight you know late 70s and early 80s with the music thing i mean it was very there was sort of a lot of integrity to it and a lot of ideas about trying to push boundaries and not conform and you know what we've, where we've come to now is like the diametric opposite so you know we were swimming against the tide then and you know, what's come to pass has been the tide that we swam against. Yes. You well, know, in, in a way, if I think about it, I've never really thought about it like that, but that is the truth of, of, of it. I'm not saying that there isn't lots of great underground um, music but, uh, out there and, 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 and people making music, but in one sense, we've all become insiders. There's no outsiders anymore. Yes, absolutely. And it was interesting because I, actually I remember sort of it was um, bizarrely Fast Eddie from Motorhead who said about how little money there was. There was just no money to, I think his phrase was to piss in a pot really. And, and you know, going to gigs and often, you know, like having no money to pay for petrol to come back from a gig if you were playing up north and 
having to sort of almost sabotage the van and, and sort of getting the mate who was a member of the AA to come and pick you up to, to bring you home again. You know, there was, it was hard, it's hard to believe, how the, you know, the kind of almost the poverty of bands at that stage. You know, that was the, probably the 70s. And then a guy in the Wolfhounds mentioned that going up to Glasgow to play a gig only to find out it was cancelled, but having no money to get home and then having to sort of busk for a few days to get some money. We had a gig in Leeds in around 1983, sort of 84, with Keith LeBlanc and Mark Stewart and, and those guys and Adrian Sherwood and um, supporting them. And we ended up, that van fell through, we ended up driving up in both of our cars. On the way there, my fan belt blew out, you know, and then on the way back, Johnny ended up with no brakes in his Volvo, sort of 1800, sort of like coasting down the M1 with no brakes, using sort of gears to try to sort of slow him down. So it was, yeah, it was a... You know, it was wasn't wasn't like a, a, a glamorous a glamorous time, but I mean, you know, when I look back, there we made some pretty, there was some pretty cool, you know, records informed. You know, I think you know a lot, certainly a lot of stuff that I've done since. Yes, absolutely, and and one of the the, the, key, the key things that I've noticed from doing the show is the kind of the the, the importance of the gatekeepers, you know, because you had the music press who were huge at that stage and influential, but also John Peel. A John Peel session would give a lot of bands that kind of. I suppose, you know, it was a bit of a cliche, I know, but there was a lot of unemployment in those days and being unemployed wasn't that big. A, well, it was almost like a career progression or life progression. You did unemployment for a few years and there was also the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance, which people, a lot of people went on. It was almost like a, a grant for musicians. And then a John Peel play in a session would then give um, bands that other bands to sort of do the album and also tour around the country and, and getting the John Peel session in 81 must have felt like a really a sort of a, a bit of a blessing from the Pope really. Funny, I guess like I mean he is such an important figure you know even in terms of being one of the first people to play like sort of electro you know early hip-hop like on the radio and just you know all of the stuff that he played that just wasn't just couldn't hear and there was no internet no no sort of alternative the only way you could hear music was on top of the pops or on you know very very few radio stations so you know what he did you know in exposing so many different forms of music that didn't have platforms then was really important but I guess it wasn't you know yeah it was cool and it was great but it wasn't just it wasn't such a big thing I mean not I don't mean that in a in a sort of arrogant way at all but it was just like you were just doing everyone was just doing what they were doing and if you found an outlet for it it wasn't like oh wow yeah we've really arrived because it wasn't like that really made any difference to us like you know financially or anything as a band at that point I mean you know music was just sort of fairly altruistic you know you you did it because you loved it you didn't do it <laughs> To make money out of it and and i think you know yeah it was it was great being able to play some other tracks that never got released when i listen back to them now like um you know there's a couple there that we never recorded sort of elsewhere i mean in truth there's a whole period of skidoo which is probably the most commercial that never got recorded because when we recorded seven songs which was with genesis peorage and peter christopherson from sort throbbing gristle and psychic tv we basically got all of that material pretty much in the week before we recorded that album. The album was recorded and mixed in three days, like, um, and, you know, Kundalini and a lot of them, it was sort of stuff that just, just sort of happened. 
and we had a whole very kind of more kind of funky percussive set that we that was what we'd been playing we'd be you know we played gigs with this heat and we played at the north london poly with certain ratio and was kind of what we were kind of known for doing that never really got recorded because and i think jen genesis was quite instrumental in this he sort of challenged us and i think it it you know it was what it was but it would have been different without him because he really sort of challenged us to really sort of because obviously you know you look at throbbing gristle and what they were he was and also subsequently you know we it so he was a fairly count you know counterculture figure and i think that that we when skidoo sort of bucked the music business you know, some of that was sort of, you know, I mean, you know, part of that was the zeitgeist of the time, I think, as well, was that it wasn't about entertaining people. It was about challenging people. So you couldn't get away with that now, really. You know, people would be like, fuck, I want my money back. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I want my money back. Yes. I expect you to do this. You know, that's the sort of ear here. Here's my iPhone. Look, I expect, you know, if you're a DJ, you know, will you play this? You know, you would have been thrown out of a club 20 years ago if you tried to do that, you know. So the whole ethos of the time has sort of changed. But back then it was very much about pushing boundaries and trying to make people question what, you know, they were going and what they were seeing. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, you know. And I think as it's interesting, actually, I think I guess now as we play recently, we do it, 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 it. We improvise, but you know, it is. I guess it is kind of more rhythmic based now. Yes. We had that sort of period where we went really far out, and maybe that was a sort of necessary sort of part of us. But actually, when we play now, I guess it is a much more rhythmic based sort of unit. Yes. And and also, it was kind of interesting because you mentioned WOMAD and I remember that period in the 80s where there was kind of that free festival movement and, and sort of like the, the enjoyment of sort of the, uh, I suppose, world musical bands like the Bundu Boys or the Four Brothers and, and people like that. And then you had Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead who was getting really into percussion. And then I remember the sort of new age scene and everyone wanted to play Jimby drums and there was Baran, people doing Baran, 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 uh, workshops, you know, the Irish drum as well. So there, there was a lot of kind of emphasis on percussion and, and rhythm at that stage and free dance. It kind of got too involved in festivals. I think with hindsight, it, you know, maybe we, we should have done that more. But the great thing about WOMAD, and that was the first one that they did at Shepparton Mallet, was there was a rail strike that weekend. So it was kind of half empty. Which was, but was kind of just right. And, you know, they had the Burundi drummers there. They had the musician, Daniil. They had this incredible lineup that they probably never did again because they could probably never afford to do that again. You know, and they were probably, you know, hampered by the sort of rail strike. But it was, it, you know, the Burundi drummers were just incredible. They played on the main stage and then they played in the second day they played in this field. So you were kind of like right up next to them. And it was, um, and obviously that, you know, that, that, you know, a lot of those sort of rhythmic things influenced 23 Skidoo a lot. Yes, absolutely. Because they were, you know, I just remember, I suppose there's a lot of sort of, Cannabis wasn't there. A lot of people smoking. They just wanted to dance for a long time. Well, I've been having a conversation with my kids about this because they're sort of grown up now and stuff. And and actually, yes, but 
there was very little cannabis. I don't know, as I remember, it's not like now when you can kind of call up and some guy, t you know, turn up, you know, for, for you know, it, it, then, I don't know, there was, people didn't really have money and you couldn't get cannabis easily. You know, it was a, you know, you had to get, it was a thing to, to get it. And, you know, you know, if people had it, it wasn't, I don't know, it, it, you know, even from sort of back in skating days, which is probably when I first sort of encountered it, it was, it was there and it was part of the culture and you aspired to it, but there was very little of it, as I remember. I mean, I guess later on into the 80s, it changed. But as I remember in, in the 70s, it wasn't like, you know, there was tons of it or, you you know, you you had to sort of, like everything else, you had to go and find it. Yes. I th I guess, without dwelling on it, I think it probably wasn't that potent because a lot of it was homegrown. I, but I can remember sitting around at festivals and joint, being past a joint and thinking, oh, actually, I'm asthmatic, so I'll have to pass it on. And feeling a little bit like, you know, dear, I, um, I, sort of, I couldn't take a puff because I'd start wheezing, really. But they were, they were definitely kind of that, that kind of little scene of someone doing the joint and rolling it and then passing it around. So no one really probably got that stoned well, about I it. I think it's interesting if you look at it now. I mean, even, you know like that how you know because in the end it's far less destructive than, than than alcohol or tobacco which are both sort of legalized forms and you know nobody ever got got into a fight after they smoked a joint you know so so you know that you know people don't end up in a and e on saturday night because of cannabis use so and it is it does you know it does have an association with creativity which is goes you know whether you want to go to, to rasters or you know to wherever you know it has that sort of that the the i guess you know it's changed now isn't it it's you know in most of america it's legal we haven't we haven't made that mental adjustment over here for some reason Yes, it is bizarre, actually. But yeah, uh, control, it, 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 you know, it, it's governmental control that, that and and sort of social norms that people think. Oh well, then that that means you open up the doorway for this. But it, it it's sort of it's a kind of juvenile way of looking at it. I think you know people have got to start having a slightly more grown up discourse about it. Yes. You know, there are you know yes there is you know problems with drug use, but if you look in America, the biggest drug problem in america is an opioid you know pharmaceutical problem you know that the, the the you know has been created by you know by big businesses so it's not you know it's not and even if you go back to the history of marijuana i guess if you see how this incredibly useful plant hemp was um you know pushed out of the equation you know and i, th I guess it's that those i think those things are in becoming increasingly important because if you look at the way our society is moving now sorry to sort of digress away from music but i think this is really important you know we're at a really i've just been watching something that's about this neo-nazi party in slovakia being sort of uh they're but they're kind of back they're not they're not in government but they're um you know it's it's like 1938 in in one sense yes so we're in a very strange so i've we've grew up through this incredible period of openness and you know the period of things coming together of culture coming together hip-hop you know all of these things that, that have you know rave all of these things that informed who we are and now suddenly you know um we're in this situation where where things are sort of trying to be riven apart again. 
and people are trying to move backwards. And it's got nothing to do with the society like us that's developed. So, you know, so we, we're in a very tricky period at the moment, I think, you know, and in, it, it, I think we'd, everyone had got used to thinking that, um, you know, a situation like the Second World War would never happen again. Obviously, it could never happen again like that, thankfully. But if you look at the politics today, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it's completely antithesis of everything that we worked towards, I feel. Yes. Well, I guess, you know, with, I just, it just reminded me, there was an interview I saw with Stuart Lee talking about comedy. Um, you know, when liberalism was the kind of main, you know, like ideology, unfortunately that kind of gets kicked for several decades or years, whatever. And then, you know, eventually that kind of gets kicked into touch almost. And then another ideology comes in. And I suppose that we get a bit complacent. I suppose we take it like, oh, yeah, that's fine. But then you realise actually it is quite it is quite um, fragile as well. It doesn't, it's not necessarily you can just keep kicking it and it will stay there. It can eventually get, you know, certain people, certain organisations can get removed and then suddenly replaced with something which is like, oh my God, they're quite scary. But, you know, we, you know, it's, um, and so we're in a position where we could look back in history at this time thinking, God, the, the signs were there. We just ignored them. Well, it, it, it's democracy and capitalism and they're, they're, they're splitting. <laughs> Yes, it is. You know, and and um, you know, if, if you can see it in creatively, and I think that that's going back to twenty three studio. And sorry to digress into sort of some some other more sort of serious thing, but but I think that you know the ethos of what we tried to do was, and and what a lot of that period was was about trying to be open and to try to, and it did really influence most of what came next. But I think. You know things like the X factor, and and also the fact that you know that actually commercial music has moved towards underground music. Yes, this you know, is true. Before pop, you know they were they were, they were they were very different. Whereas now, actually, you know it, it, the line between hip hop and you know most pop music is like black R and B from the nineties. You know that that's like Boys to Men. It's like sort of you know New Jack Swing. That's what most pop. <laughs> You know, most pop acts sound like now, you know, if you understand the sort of the historic references. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Because, um, you know, having just just on the back, back on the band front, because because what I did notice that most bands do have that five year narrative, you know, the kind of cliche, especially at that time of getting together, the sort of the, getting a single John Peel going, oh, that's quite interesting, the session, that first album and then the second album. And if anybody ever does America, they seem to come back sort of done that's it the end of the band so you know but you you sort of have quite a similar you got to three albums really didn't you and then then yeah, never went to america and then basically i think what happened after um we met this guy sketch from this band who was in, in links intuition you know they just had this huge hit intuition yes i remember that and at, at a roller disco once he was desperately trying to get away from this commercial funk sort of thing and so we had this really weird you know meeting with and, and he became part of the band and it you know we watched shogun he showed us shogun assassin and that you know, they, we meant, then made coup language, which was kind of his beat, and urban gambling. And, and he, it, it's actually, yeah, it's interesting. We met him. I don't know if you remember this pro, TV program called Riverside, 
we did a couple of those, this sort of BBC, it was quite arty, that kind of, you know, avant-garde dance, a contemporary dance on it. We did a performance of Urban Gambling with this dance troupe, Mantis. Um, and then we also did this, an interview with this guy, Perry Haynes, who had been Rod Pierce at Fetish's partner and later um, sort of went on to, you know, form, become, you know, very important per- person in terms of the face and, and stuff. And um, he wanted to interview us and we... <laughs> We did an interview using half-inch, uh, quarter, sort of quarter-inch tape loops. So everything was looped round and we'd come back and we'd come back and everything you said, everything you said, everything you said, we'd keep coming around on top of each other. And he started off and he started kind of got really a bit freaked out and sort of said, oh, the culling is coming. Who's being culled? And it sort of, of course, it just kept screaming back at him. And then we started sort of doing it, and it never that one never got shown actually. Even the producers had to be said, "Wow, that was I've never seen anything like that before." But but Sketch was living with Perry Haynes, and we met him that day, and he was just like, "Wow, you guys are fucking, you guys are, you're, are really out there." And um and so we began our sort of part musical partnership, and which became Ronin. And at that point, really, what happened? is after the period with Illuminated, we had no outlet for music because then unless you had an A&R guy, you had a music company, you know, studios with 200 quid an hour, it was just like impossible to make music. So unless you had that commercial backup, you couldn't, you couldn't make music really. So what basically happened is we made our own studio. We had a little kind of, we started off with a Porter studio. Then we had a little eight track, you know, machine, just, and then we got into sampling, you know, we had this little boss pedal, which was the first sort of one second sampler that you just triggered. You could just put one sound in it and, and, and it was like, you know, one of those foot pedals. And then we got into Akai's, got the first Atari with C-Lab. So the beginning of sort of music programming. And that was how we sort of created our own environment to make music. So Skidoo, Skidoo kind of finished, well, Skidoo mutated into Ronin which is basically Masterless Samurai. That's the concept of Ronin, is it's highly skilled guys who have gone renegade <laughs> and no longer serve a master. So they're there, which is what happened in feudal Japan after the wars, all these, all, these, all these samurai were then left unemployed and they went off and kind of, that is what Seven Samurai is sort of based on, that, that trouble. It should actually be called Seven Ronin because they're all Ronin. And so our thing was we're, we're, we're musical Ronin, we're musical assassins. And we started, you know, our own recording thing, which became a, you know, quite a successful underground, not successful, I mean, I think an important underground thing. We became one of the first British breakbeat hip-hop, you know, labels. We did Estelle's first record, we did Roots Maneuver's first record. You know, we were with these guys, uh, Skits, who's, you know, that album that he made, Countryman, with Johnny, was, you know, it's 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 one of the main British hip-hop albums. It's got everybody on it. And the difference is, because then a lot of British hip-hop was very underproduced. People didn't want to listen to people rapping in British accents. It's not like now. Um, and the thing with Countryman is it's incredibly well-produced because Johnny did it. <laughs> Yes. My, my brother Johnny, who I keep sorry, I don't know if I'd said he's my brother, but he's been my partner sort of in skating, uh, you know, and in music, and then sort of later on in the sort of art stuff. The only thing that we haven't done together is martial arts, which we both do, 
but that was the one thing that we realized that we were just going to kind of we didn't want to keep be, we didn't want to be i think we had a spa once in 1984 and then after that we just decided we, we just pursued our own paths in martial arts yes we, we both still do it passionately but, but, but we, we we that's the only everything else we've kind of we've sort of done you know in sync Yes. And during that time, because, you know, I was, I have to say, a bit of a John Peel cliche, so any, but anything he kind of played, I tried and get into. And, and during that time, the early hip-hop years started. So I sort of went to that event, was it in 86 at Wembley, UK Fresh? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was there. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm a, I'm, no, no, actually, because we nearly signed to death, if you can believe this, 23 Skidoo. Just before we became Ronin, really, nearly signed to Rush Management of Def Jam. I had sort of started DJing in around 1983, and I was in a club in 1986 in New York DJing, and this guy, this huge guy came up to me. It turned out his name was Leo Cohen, who was Russell Simmons' partner. It was like, hey, man, you want a manager? And I said, no, but, you know, we, I've got a band. And we ended up going to New York and we recorded at Chunking, which was this kind of crappy little sort of studio, but where all these, you know, where all these incredible hip hop records, you know, historic hip hop records, LL Cool J, you know, Ron Dimsey, all these records had been made. And working with this guy, Sam Sever, who worked with Mantronics, um, it never came out because I think, you know, it was just <laughs> the ethoses were too. They were just far apart. They gave us this contract. It was like a Bible, and it included a slice of everything you did for the rest of your life. So I'm quite glad I didn't sign it in the end. Yes. Well, I, I can remember there was the Street Sounds compilations that used to come out on a regular basis. And most of them, you know, because they had Stetsasonic and people like, um, I don't know, Lovsky. I don't know. I can't remember his name now, actually. Yeah. I mean, so that's those are two different. So there's the sort of that early street sounds period, which is more like 83, 84, which is the really before it's even called hip hop. Yes, there was because, yeah. And it's kind of run the MC, Rakim, that's public enemy is kind of really when it sort of becomes, you know, through into sort of audio by nature, then it becomes sort of hip hop. But really, it wasn't really called hip hop then. You know, we, it, was for, it was electro, wasn't it, really? Because oh, it yes, was... it was electro compilations. Because <laughs> yeah. actually, the, the, the band I loved, or the woman, was Roxanne Chante, and then there was the real Roxanne with yeah. Marley Mar. Well, no, I can't remember. Well, no, because too, because the real Roxanne, she was, for, well, she made records first, because basically there was this crew, UTFO, who I love, who were done by this, these people, Full Force, who did that track, Alice, which was actually a number one. Um, in, 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 you know, in the UK charts. But they had this crew, they did this track called Roxanne, Roxanne. Yes. Um, and uh, with like three guys, uh, Kango Kid, Educated Rapper, and Dr. And, um, Dr. Ice. And, um, and then she did a reply, Roxanne Chant, uh, yeah, the real Roxanne. And she did, she did a reply. It was like the first hip-hop yes. reply. This record, but she, Roxanne Chante, yeah, she was she was great live on stage. All those records, she was like, yeah, she was part of the Juice Crew. Well, I would say one of the, be- the one of those albums or singles I played all through that particular year was "Bite This," which was the twelve inch, which was just fantastic. Yeah, she must have yeah. been all of fourteen at the time. Yeah. But there was because actually John Peel's one of his favorite people was DJ Cheese, which was very bizarre, and no one knows uh, who did Cheese. Mouth, word of mouth, because they were. I've got both those records, King Cut and Coast to Coast. But again, they've kind of been forgotten. They, nobody knows 
who they are. They're not like held up. But that was like before. This is like way before Run DMC. This is like a year before Run DMC, and or or I guess maybe Sucker MCs is just starting to emerge. But that I guess that it's interesting that sort of I think that changed hip hop really. Sucker MCs and Run DMC and the whole Aerosmith, yes. The look and the vibe, you know, because before that, a lot of it was quite, you know, it was quite theatrical. Well, I can, because I can remember, and you probably can as well, but I remember seeing people like Salt and Pepper on the tube, and the sound was really basic. And then that UK Fresh thing at Wembley, that kind of the Woodstock of hip hop or whatever. Everyone had whistles. The sound, the the my drum, my ears got so hammered on that event. It was unbelievable. Yeah, but so, but it's interesting how now you know hip hop's become this sort of other thing. But very much then, and interestingly enough, even into rave, if you look at early rave, the early raves were like Paul Oakenfeld, you know, Public Enemy, the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul. So you know, at that point, it, there was very much a um, a mixture still before kind of, you know, Ray, at Ray Rave and, at, and, and then EDM and, and some stuff. In, in its early days, culturally, because a lot of the people that had come to Rave when it started had come from all of these other things. But at that point, you've got to remember also that hip-hop was in this very um, black, militant phase. So a lot of white kids who were really were into it because it was like that was the thing with kind of disenfranchised because it's like look, you can never, this is this is not you you can't be part of this and i think when rave came along a lot of people went you know alongside with all of the sort of you know associated chemical sort of stuff that went with that and then that for me is really when it opens up underground culture because then you have guys that you've been running that've been chasing you down the street <laughs> months before you know, you know, that were then, you know, in the dance. Yes. Well, it was interesting because a lot of the bands are, you know, the, the 80s bands that I've interviewed, they normally finish for various reasons around 87, 88, 87. Yeah, that's right. Because they've had they've had five years, but it was like the, the, the scene had changed and everyone had had enough of the sort of jingly jangly sounds. And also that was the end of the Smiths and that kind of seemed to signify some sort of event. But then the ecstasy world came along and, and that kind of changed it. So unless you're going to be the soup dragons or the happy mondays or the stone roses that was going to happen but then you had people like guy called gerald and then you had all that italian house stuff on brian brian carter music and and even adamski's early you know like live and direct though that might have been as well and i mean streams of life and all that Derek may stuff but it's funny for me as a drummer i was never drawn to kind of the house beat and because I guess then they didn't have all the variations of the kind of percussive house and this and that, you know, and my first encounter was Nitro Deluxe, this brutal house, you know, it's like, mm, 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 mm. so that sort of mechanical four, four beat was, I was into kind of swung funk drums, you know, can, I'm into Jackie Liebstein and sort of like, um, you know, and those guys. So I think that we, even though we did our first record on Ronin Jailbreak was, um, a very up-tempo thing that was a huge kind of rave hit. We were very much kind of flying the flag for, you know, other musics. You know, we didn't really, we didn't really do that whole rave thing. I, I didn't really, cult, you know, culturally it wasn't, it wasn't really, just wasn't uh, my, just wasn't my thing. Yes. Was. 
much what I, what I was into. You know, everyone, I think everyone else was. It opened a lot of people up to a lot of stuff that were nowhere to do with that. But, but just because it, going back to right to the beginning of where we started, I guess because of my upbringing, you know, this thing of sort of, you know, we'd always done, I'd already done it with skating, we'd already done that with skidoo, we travelled up and down the country on the back of a empty transit van, you know, no seats with us and the instruments, you know, and then, you know, I've been in DJ, you know, the big, so, you know, we sort of, by the time Rave had come along, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, it was a really eye opener, but, but I think for me, it was sort of, I don't know, it wasn't my idea of what I'd already sort of done that bit per, personally of opening up. Yeah. I've opened up a, lot, a long time before that because I think it was a collective opening up culturally, you know, in, a lot for a lot of people individually, but also collectively as well. Mm. Obviously, for, for some reason, it wasn't ever really, you know, no, I, I, you know, I, I still DJ a little bit. My, you know, I love, you know, I, I love some. There's a lot of like great, great sort of uptempo music that I like. But at the time, it was funny that whole thing, even though it's such a big thing culturally, it wasn't. And for us musically, it was never really. We did a couple of sort of things that were 120 BPM, but generally our stuff isn't isn't like that. Yes. And then ten years ago, you made a film about your father, which must have been. Was this the first time you'd done a film? Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because I'm just about. I've just made my second project, which is called Rise of the Streets, which is a bit. It's the history of all of our. It's like all of our. I've got every. I've record. I've. Um, interviewed everybody, but but Beyond Time was my kind of starting point. I'd never made a film before, and I just made it. It took, took four or five years to make that film to really because the interesting thing about my dad um, and then that generation was that they didn't really talk about what they'd done. <laughs> Complete opposite of now, where everyone just can't shut up about you know the the most mundane thing that they've done. But those that that generation they didn't. So to actually kind of get his story out of him I had to kind of go and find all of these other people and it just so happened that they're a pretty stellar cast of the art world but when I was making that film and when I tried to sell it in 2010-11 you know an art doc was not on the cards for any it was not like a cool thing you know the, the documentary with Netflix the whole documentary format has undergone a complete sort of you know rediscovery but at that time an art documentary about a sort of british artist that who who is incredibly important but had because of his own you know strong-mindedness had been kind of edged out because he'd never joined the wrong account you know he'd, there were certain things that he he refused to do because they felt that he, that was his you know that that he had his position and that was what he could do and so it was amazing to be able to go and make this unlock this thing about this guy you know and, and both him and, and there's a bit about my mom in that as well she's an incredible artist she's every bit as good as him and her star is she's, she's just about to have a show at the tate so she is she's just about to be completely rediscovered which is really which is a really um a really beautiful thing but it was really nice because his story had been for, no one knew it nobody knew his his, his story so um and he wouldn't talk about it so I, you know, it's like got Nick Sirota, it's got Anthony Gorman, it's got Peter Blake, Richard Hamilton, you know, all of these guys, you know, Barry Flanagan, you know, all these really sort of serious dudes. And I, I ended up getting, you know, was very fortunate, Jude Law, who's a friend of mine at the time, 
you know, read, agreed to do the narration because I didn't want to do that. I didn't. I was had been under pressure by certain people to try to present it and be, you know, hey, look, this is me and my journey and me and my dad. But it was like, no, no, no that's not what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was a film that 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 told itself, the world, the people within it told itself. But there were a couple of plot points that I didn't have, and and I wrote them, and Jude, you know very, very kindly agreed to sort of read them because he'd seen a rough cut and was very supportive. He and another friend of mine, Sean Pertwee, who are both great actors, um, but also kind of close friends of mine. So they'd seen an early, you know, rough cut thing that I'd tried to do because I'd shown it to them to, to, to ask their, their opinion. And, and, you know, in the end, they ended up showing it on BBC4 and it was uh, really great. And that was after my dad passed away. But I did get to watch it with him at the ICA when we had a screening, you know, um, and I think that was probably like one of the proudest, you know, um, you know, evenings of my life, really. Oh, God, the, yes, that must it, have been you know, a moment. They, so I just gave up, got up, gave a speech, Jude came and introduced the film, and you know, Gormley turned up, you know, Alan Jones, there was all these, like, Michael Craig Masters, there's all these people from the art world. But then there was all like Goldie and, you know, sort of Ian Brown and all these people sort of from my sort of, world as well that were there and it was this really lovely sort of collision of these different worlds and um yeah, it was just great you know for him you know to be able to sort of be able to do that and and actually the reality is i learned a lot about myself and you know what we've done creatively because we followed a it's like oh wow all that, that stuff that we did with skidoo that we thought we'd done and we're breaking you he'd done that like before we were born <laughs> in a different sense with his art and so we have this sort of genetic predisposition to this certain sort of thing and it, it was very very interesting to sort of see how that um that idea of somebody who and somebody described in this artist test she said he was the model you know for integrity and it's just like you have that sort of belief and you you stick by that belief and i think i guess you know, sometimes with Skidoo, you know, we were probably over-idealistic, you know, to the point it was worked to our detriment. But, you know, I guess that is definitely something that, that we got because in the end, that's what you had to do to be an artist. Because if, if you said you're an artist to someone back then, they'd just look at you like, get a job. So, you know, it was, not, it was not like, oh, hey, I'm an artist. Like now, people forget, you know, even 20 years ago, creative was kind of like a slightly dirty, it was like, oh, you know, well, what do you do? Now everyone wants to be, you know, that's the whole thing. But, yes. but actually that's a, been a big cultural shift that's happened over the last 30, 40 years. Before, you know, in the 70s, it was all about just getting down to it and doing it. And any idea of creativity was, you know, it's interesting. I've been reading this book about the, this book about the history of the blues, and it, even if you take it right back to that, it, it's all that idea of like the devil's music and anything that was creative or artistic was sort of deemed by the sort of establishment to be sort of you know a negative. But actually, the reality is all of that stuff where you can create something immense from nothing is, you know, that's everything. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to um, start yeah. with a blank sheet. Art, art, music, you know, nobody, that doesn't, it's not like a stock or something that someone creates that has a, a sort of, that's something that someone's done, that's just someone's creative output that they've done that then has this sort of resonance that then translate into a financial resonance. But unfortunately, then what you get is the 
the money people siphoning back into the creative process, which is totally what we have nowadays. We have the complete interference, you know, in the creative process. Not saying that there aren't really creative people, not saying that there isn't, um, you know, a, a, a lot of amazing stuff. Of course, there is just so much, almost too much, as Richard Hamilton did in his interview. He said, "There's too much art. They should pay. They should pay people to stop making art." And I just thought it was a, it was just a hysterical. I don't think it made it into the film because it was it was it it wasn't sort of relevant to the story that I was trying to tell at that time. But it was just it was just brilliant. It was just so funny, you know. And, and in a way, it spoke volumes into. I guess that that thing, and I hear like, I don't mean to sound sort of, uh, you know, old-fashioned, but you know that whole thing about having to the search and the journey gives whatever it is significance, and there's something to be said that you know if you if everything is so easily attainable, it lacks any substance because there's no emotion, as Bruce would say, there's no emotional content. You know, there's no, there's nothing to attach it to other than it's just another thing that you've just acquired, you know, and that's some, you know, that's very much sort of what a lot of the way things are structured now is, is it's hard for anything to be really significant because there's just so much stuff there's, and there's so much other stuff that, that it's only, it's just another bit of music. Yes. So it's kind of that thing when it was that thing that was sort of just so otherworldly. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe that's maybe I'm being really disingenuous there, and actually, maybe that's really not fair because maybe actually, and that's the amazing thing about music is somebody can just write a piece of music that can just touch somebody. All right, and there's different ways you can do that. There's different, there's, but actually, so maybe maybe what I'm saying is incorrect because actually that's coming back to it that that is the amazing thing about music is the effect that it has on people, you know, and as an art form, it's unlike any other. All the other art forms require your total attention, but music, you can do that when you're driving, you can do it when you're shagging, you can do it when you're, you know, when you're, when you're working, you can, and it's subliminal, but you can put your headphones on and you can be completely lost and focused in that as well. So, and because it doesn't give you a visual, always a visual to it, your imagination has to work. Which you think is good? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess I uh, just remo- reminded me of the Ma- Malcolm Gladwell, isn't it? The hundred thousand hours. You do have to. I mean, it is it, yes, because there is a sort of element of people just wanted to be famous for no reason. Whereas I think in the old days, people wanted to actually make music and be on stage with this sort of idea that that would lead to something. But you had to produce something to you. Fame was the end. That's that's the sort of commercial. You know, I mean, commerciality. That was the worst thing when we were doing Skidoo in the early eighties. Someone said you're a sellout. You're a commercial. That's the worst thing that anybody could say to you. That was like, and now it's just like that's just kind of like yeah, <laughs> sort of you know that, that that's sort of like you know. I mean, I don't mean that in, in the wrong way, but I think I do believe that that you know that whole bit, the the industry and the way that the whole thing is geared up to sort of monetize. Everybody is in it for something. Well, I can remember, and I, I would imagine you can remember when Sonic Youth signed to a major label that was actually sort of like breaking news in the indie papers or the papers, you know, and it's like, should we play the new Sonic Youth album because it's going to be on Warners and not on the, you know, I think it was ST Records. And, it, and you know, now <laughs> no one would understand what the hell you were talking about. But then it was a bit like, God, you can't sign for a major, for Christ's sake. Yeah. That I mean, was... 
yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, so, so that ethos is, is you know, and, and, and you know, that's just how it is, I guess. That's just how it is. So, just so you were saying you've just finished another project. Is this a film that you just put together? These sort of things the wrong way around. Mostly, you're supposed to go and take something and sell the concept, get it commissioned, and then make it. And I kind of do my stuff the other way around. So, with Beyond Time, it was just me and my good friend Peter Stern, who was an ex-skater, who was a musician who'd sort of done stuff with us over Skidoo over the years. He played on the Stussy Tribe record we made, and and he's a fantastic editor as well. And um, so we did that. We, you know, we made that film. And this, I've been sort of shooting Rise of the Streets ever since, you know, just shooting interviews with people. And it was only really a year ago, because Pete, he'd moved to, to America, and he moved back, and started sort of really addressing how to put because it's not a thing that's about punk or new romantics or it's about how culture fits together and so how do you tell that in a narrative and i think i found a way it works episodically at the moment so that's i'm hoping to kind of go that route but i'm literally just at the point where i've got four kind of proper episodes and and i'm sort of literally just trying to find but i don't it's not my world that world so i've I, but, but you know it's only one degree of separation yes well uh, you know i'm one of those people who loves my bbc four on a friday night documentary so hopefully it'll get commissioned it really does have everybody in it you know from you know it's a who's who of everybody from 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 back then till now i'm not going to start shouting out names actually but but it is I, you know and and what's been great about it and, and i think beyond time was my calling card it was like look this is beyond time for our because none of this is on the internet, none of this stuff, all right? And, um, you know, maybe people don't think it's important, but it's informed everything that we are today. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, you know, like it or not, accept it or not. And yes, it doesn't matter because we're here now. But if you're at all interested, and we always revered culturally what came before us, our generation. So this is the story, this is the people that, that did. And it's an interesting interesting tight small story arc of people and it, what's interesting is you can keep going deeper it's at the moment it, it's really you know it's london new york you know a bit of la and obviously jamaica sort of got an in, in, input those are the four places that have really informed and then later japan and then obviously tokyo you know in the sort of 90s mm. so it kind of it, it kind of weaves together those strands and how the different sort of diverse started off kind of being you know about style and 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 but it's not like about streetwear or something it's how how come everybody's so interested in you know before only a few people were interested in having you know a two-tone suit or you know looking looking like you know nice but now everybody you know that that's just it's just part of it's 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 you know all the main street high street stores are all selling all of that stuff you know every fashion label does a sneaker you know it, it's sort of it's all of that, you know, culture has been absorbed, yes, completely into into the norm. So it's 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 what's what's nice is a great people, amazing stories, and what's I think the art. What I learned in Beyond Time because it's just me and a cameraman. It's a very guerrilla sort of thing, but um, I mean, it's probably probably you know shot in HD and stuff, but it's not like sort of. Um, People, people it, it's spontaneous. So when people answer and they think about something, they get excited about something they haven't thought about for 20 years, it's that excitement. Whereas if people have prepared answers and stuff, it's not the same. It's kind of like they're reading off a teleprompt. But the kind of the real, the real magic is finding these sort of bits where these incredible people sort of 
recollect something that they hadn't really thought about for 20 or 30 years and a moment that that, that that just you know really can be can be looked at and go yeah that sort of changed you yes. know that that changed culture you know or that the slowly the, the seed that was laid there kind of went on and it took and and by the time it actually kind of uh sort of came out of the ground people didn't a lot of people didn't recognize where the seed was from you know and it's interesting you know even with rave culture i mean how much of that you know it went off a little bit in the baggy sort of stuff but really it was very influenced by hip-hop you know culture and, and you know linguistics you know that's it, it, it's modern language is so much influenced by that wicked and you know all of these sort of very chill you know i remember the first time sean oliver you know rest in peace god bless him said to me chill and i was like wow what you, that's a weird american word like but it's it's you know all of that vernacular is completely normal for us now yes well it's interesting because i sort of realized doing this show especially you know that 30 years seems to be a part of a time where you know mostly we weren't that bothered about a lot of stuff you know like fanzines or even the music and then sort of 30 years pass or thereabouts and then suddenly you know there were two books that came out on fanzines of the 80s which were like wow that's a lot of work and then there's been a lot of films there was the wedding present had one about an album they did george best and then the go betweens the chills the slits you know l7 so there is this kind of history being told now from and even uh what's it the corn dollies no the dolly mixtures um even they had a sort of film about them you know which was 35 minutes so it's interesting that suddenly you know the importance of lots it's become you know it's sort of you know it, it, it's great and it is interesting and actually it is interesting it's sort of as and i think you know a lot of them are labors of love with people because it's people who've been shooting stuff over a long time so i guess in that respect you know it, it is really good but i guess yes that is the, the the time that we're in now i guess where people are interested in this but i think what i've done is it's different because it's it's not about one thing yes it's about how things fit together and and and, and i've got a very unique perspective because i've careened my way as a skateboard as a drummer as a dj i did a bit of modeling around 1985 just for a year but you know all the people like that work with matt maria testino Stephen myself Arthel, you know they've gone on you know they were big but fashion was tiny so um, is, it, is this more are you more adam curtis you know is this the adam curtis kind of like sort of bringing interesting theories and narratives to the story that sort of you know we haven't thought about but um i don't know if you know his work but you know that that kind of way of being um, I'm not so sure. I think hopefully it's it's new. Hopefully, and each episode is like a story arc that a kind of group of characters take you on, and they're connected somehow. And then you watch another one, and it's the same. But and they are, and these the different episodes sort of connect. So you form your own sort of thing about how it all sort of fit together. But it's I'm not look. It's only my thing and and obviously i've got lots more but i've only used a fraction of the interviews that i've got actually so that i've got some absolutely incredible stuff but really i had i could have just carried on editing forever but i had to sort of try to make it now a reality and i learned from sort of with beyond time you know that, that that's not if you're not involved in that world it's not as easy as you might think and also coming with something that's kind of done is, 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 is rather against the grain. Yes. It's not sort of how things are set up, but I, I think, I think I'm pretty sure that once I get to the right, but they, they'll, it, it, it's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. 
And, and you know, I've had all the people that are involved that you know that are in it, uh, you know, are really into it. And that's that's the 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 the, the best sort of assessment that I could get. Everyone's like, yeah, it's good. It's Excellent. Good. And just and just one last one one last question. What would you say to a, a kind of an eighteen year old self starting out? You know that that thing that you you've sort of picked up through experience and then thus wisdom. You know that you think, oh, that that's something that I would really tell anybody that I, you know, that bit of advice or yeah, like I said, you know. Well, I don't know. I don't know if there is one, but I guess just be true. Just you know, try. Do to yourself, you know, if it, it, you know that that may be difficult because sometimes we don't know who, you know, being that that can mean lots of different things, and and it's very hard nowadays to be true to yourself because we are judged by other people, you know. So very much, you know, this whole thing where I came from and you know where the, the where I kind of grew up around was very much about you know, developing your own identity. And, and I, I, but I think in the modern world, that means something different because it's so governed by likes and things. So that's all I, all I would say, you know, is, is try to be, you know, true to, 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 to what you do. And also, I guess, another thing I would say is when, you know, an opportunity comes, it may not come again. Just be aware of that, whether or not you choose to take it or not. Sometimes it's like when you're in that, the midst of something, it seems like, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but I won't, you know. So what I'm saying may sound contradictory because I'm not saying go, you know, send your soul to, to go and do something else. But, but you know, if that's what you want to do and it's going to further what you do, then, then that's fine because in the end the rules are different now, aren't they? Yes. No one's going to judge you for, for doing this and for that. And the only the only kind of prerequisite is was it successful or not? So but but I think, you know, being true to, to what you believe in as in, in as far as you can interpret that in, as whatever it means, that's that's the most important thing. Absolutely. The one thing I try and teach, you know, my kids and you know, yeah, I think that's you know, try not to be swayed. Sometimes look, you listen. There's people in your life that are really important that give you really important advice, and you have to know who they are and be wise, you know, to know who are the people that are giving you good advice that you should listen to. Because not everyone gives you good advice, but but at the same time, you've got to go with your gut and you've got to go with what what you what you believe. Absolutely. Oh, look, Alex, this has been fantastic, and God, well, I hope I didn't ramble on about too much. Now, my apologies for swearing a couple of times. I'm no, just... that's fine. That's fine. But God, I, I really hope you get these films out because um, I have to say, oh, it will, it will, it will, it will. It's not a, it's not a if. It, it's a will. It's just a question of when I meet. And I think I'm, I've got a couple of meetings this week, so I'm very. I've it's only since the beginning of this year, which is only I guess you know a month and a bit, that I've even thought right I've got I spent all of last year Pete moved back we just edited last year and we constructed the format and it's like okay yes this is how and it works and it's new and all the sort of editing I've done with music and music to sound I've brought all of that so it's kind of in a way the culmination of everything that I've done the way I've edited and used you know if we've got a pill video or a a cherry the way it's edited in and out and the way it beats, it's, it's kind of all, all of my DJing stuff has, has sort of come in there. So I'm, I think it, 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 it's, I'm very, I'm very proud, you know, which, which is amazing because it's like, it's like an eight year sort of pregnancy. And I find it at this point when it's, oh, it's like it's, it's birthing. And yes, I've still got the most important bit to do, which is, but, but I know 
what we've got. And so I think even though often, you know, it, 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 the, the, there is a process to this next bit, it, it's very important for me also to find the right people to do it with, because yeah. people understand it. You know, that, that otherwise it's not, otherwise it doesn't happen. But the great thing is it has the capacity to keep going. So you can keep going, you can go sideways in time, backwards, forwards. You, know, you can do something about kind of a new crew now. You can go back, do something about the Hells Angels and, the, you know, the influence of all of that, you know, the, the, the jackets and the chapters and the kind of whole culture and where that came from. Because really that's the birth of it all, isn't it? Post-Second World War, I guess, which morphs into sort of rockers and stuff and it is just this idea of counterculture yes but, but my, my my bit is kind of just before punk well because i was skating just when punk was happening i was too young i couldn't get into the vortex you know i was too young and i didn't have the clothes i didn't have the the means to be able to be around yeah i wasn't around we're skate you know i was i was skating you know and that was a different and i'm very grateful that i have that because i still think that that's all my friends from skating are still my friends and they're all great guys and i think skating is you know one of the most positive forces even though i don't skate anymore you know i i i can still it's sort of in my essence because i was for for, for the first bit and it informed everything i did and it informed you know, my outlook on things. And I think it, it, it's the first inclusive, one of the first really inclusive things, whether you're from, you know, whatever walk of life. Because at the South Bank, you know, in A75, you know, there was kids from Kensington, kids from Vauxhall, kids from Bristol, kids from Camden. You know, it was just all walks of life and it just didn't, just didn't matter at all. You know, and I think that that, you know, I guess music happened, but I, I don't think music is, because I guess it, it is... Music has tended to be less inclusive, I think, it, for for a good reason. But it was kind of exclusive, wasn't it? If you think about it, back in the day, right, if you turned up at a reggae jam or a hip hop jam and you weren't part, you felt like an outsider. Yes, this so is like, true. Yeah. But, but and I guess the same is true of skating. You know, in the end, it's all about earning it, and I think that's what's so great about skating is you can't just pretend to skate. <laughs> Yes. You've got to skin your legs, you know, and bust your hips and, and do all of that to be able to be part of that. It's like, it's very old school. It's like the original DJing, the original breakdancing thing, the kind of the, the, the MCing thing of guys kind of getting up. It, it's like you've got to be, it's a performance thing. It's not like where a lot of stuff now has become now. It's about affectation. It's real. And if you want to earn entree into that, you have to take the time and take the hits and put in the hours to get good, and then you'll be accepted. So it's not like you can go in and, yeah, be accepted by the skate. It's not going to happen like that. That's not what I mean. But, you know, it doesn't matter who you are if you do that bit. You know, and I, you know, and I, I guess, you know, music has, I guess, I don't know, it, it, I guess it has been more, you know, Maybe that maybe that's just a facet of the time. I guess maybe it was it was the, the, those things were much more insulated then, whereas now everything is accessible. Yeah. 
But there yes, is... but I, I, it's interesting because I come from a sports background more than music, really, because actually, you know, being kind of working class from the countryside, so we played a lot of football, but you do, you just literally have to practice and practice and yeah. then practice some more. So it isn't, you know, <laughs> there's no point just having the, the football boots. You have to be able to do the thing, you know, and now I'm more into sort of other things like trying to get better at triathlons, but that takes hours and hours of trying to improve your swimming or biking or running. And it's just, it's a solitary thing a lot of the time. Yeah, it's tough, you know. It's tough. And I think that's what's nice. That's the great thing about skating is, it, you know, it's a very social thing. The, 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 if you watch this great Supreme film um, called Blessed that they made, and um, if you watch it, it's just, it's just a load of kids and a load of music and a load of skating. No, there's no narrative, no nothing. And, but it's, if you watch the sort of camaraderie and, and the sort of the, it, it's, a great, it's a great thing, you know, it's great. And for me, it's interesting how, you know, I, I think, yeah, skating, I think it represents a very positive... It's going to be interesting to see how it goes down. It's going to be in the Olympics if the Olympics happens. Yes, you know, oh, God. Yes, don't, that's too weird to think about, isn't it? Cancelling that. But, Alex, yeah. look, thank you ever so much. Well, no, it's a pleasure, David. It was, it was really nice talking to you, and, um, and I hope, hope it's, it, it's useful. I hope, you know, if anyone ends up listening to it, you know, I hope it's... I haven't gone on... No. Yes, that's what, you know, it, it's... I could have gone on a lot more about the early, you know, skidoo stuff and what, but in, in in a way, it's sort of a long time ago that sort of thing. And and I think it's been interesting. Actually, we played last year at the Hundred Club, which is where we played. If we end here, where we played one of our very first gigs, and it was packed, and it, people came from all over England. When you and when you go go to the stage and you leave and you go, it's like you walk through the crowd there. You know, and it was really nice. It was it was a really great sort of people were like, yeah, it's like, duh, 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 we should do it. And I, I, you know, I'd like to do it. I would love to do it more. But at the moment, between looking after the art and, and the, what really has been going on with my film, it's like that's that I realised that that's that's the focus of what i you know I'm, I'm doing at the moment. The skidoo thing will be we will be doing what we will do, but we're not like reforming. It will never reform and go back out on the road and be like that. Yes. You know, we did. We actually we wrote some new material that we, I wish we recorded about four or five years ago. We went out and did this load of gigs. We played at um, Meltdown. We did. We played in Japan. We did. We did uh, the you know, festival, but we it sort of it just in the end we just didn't record it. We we but, but I'm sure we'll get round to it at some point. But but it's you know we're like Colonel Kurtz. We appear and disappear. <laughs> Excellent, yes, keeping it going. Well, look, Alex, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much, and I'll keep in touch, and I'll send you the link when it comes yeah. out. Amazing. All right, David, great talking to you there. All the See best. Have a yeah. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.